Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Coffee? Tea? Kombucha? What's brewing in your neck of the woods? On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're examining the brewing process from all sides. First, we'll meet Austin Sherman and Alexis Corman, founders of Big Easy Bucha a kombucha brewing business that has set the Gulf South on fire with innovative local flavors. What's brewing at Big Easy Bucha is a lot more than fermented tea. They're brewing a healthy social justice revolution. PJ's Coffee's founder, Phyllis Jordan, brewed up a revolution herself when she began serving cold-brewed iced coffee in New Orleans in the 1980s. We'll learn all about that, and then we'll sit down with Tom Oliver, to dissect the science behind brewing coffee. Tom has been one of New Orleans coffee gurus for decades, a talent now on display at his Broad Street coffee house, Coffee Science. And no discussion of brewing would be complete without a sudsy brew in hand. Our friends at Courtyard Brewery will supply the beer and share the knowledge behind their self-described small batch nano brewery. We're having a real brouhaha on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Austin Sherman, and this is my wife, Alexis Corman. And we are the co-founders of Big Easy Bucha, the South's premier kombucha brand. Alexis Corman and Austin Sherman may not be household names in Louisiana, but for kombucha lovers, Big Easy Bucha might be. Located on Euphrosine Street in what's become an industrial culinary corner of New Orleans, known as Maker's Mile, Austin and Alexis have turned their small brewery into ground zero of a southern kombucha revolution. Kombucha is a sparkling probiotic tea. And ours is wildly delicious. It's really good for digestion. Uh, it's a great cocktail mixer for those that want to. Good for immunity. And um, as a former Diet Coke junkie, I can attest that it's a great soda replacement. Very low sugar as well. Established in 2014, Big Easy Bucha is Louisiana's first commercial kombucha brewery and the largest of its kind in the Gulf South. Bottles with their distinctive flavor labels can be found across the region, everywhere from grocery store shelves to restaurants to tap rooms. And demand has been increasing. We're in 15 states and growing. We ship as far north as New York City, into Chicago, and then also into uh, Washington State. We're in over 2,000 stores, projected with some commitments from some big chains this year to be in about 5,000 stores. Alexis and Austin spoke with us at their brewery about how they're putting their own Southern stamp on this trendy drink. Their story begins in 2013, 
with a chance meeting that led to their new business and eventual marriage. I asked Alexis to take us back to that moment when their fates aligned. I met him at a bar, like all great New Orleans romances. I was a beverage journalist in a previous life and was trying to interview Miss Abigail, who used to run a Sobu, and she was running a little late, which is totally fine because that's how I met my future husband, who was bartending at the time. So I sat down and chatted him up. One of the first things we talked about was eating organic foods and focusing on what we ingested and probiotics as a new function of you know health and wellness we dated for a little while and uh, I was out of a job Alexis of course was writing and I was making some batches small very small batches of kombucha for personal consumption at home and she came home from a, a press trip and said you know this is really good in fact it in my opinion tastes better than the mass market items that are out there on the shelves today why don't you get off your butt and start selling some and see if we can't make something out of this. So we did. We sketched out a logo on a cocktail napkin, came up with a name and our first few flavors, passed them out to some friends and just got incredible feedback. Shortly thereafter, signed a lease in a very small commercial kitchen about the size of a conference table and launched the brand. That was in 2014. And it turned into a great romance and an awesome business. You have grown by leaps and bounds. For a while, you all were in production at Edible Enterprises, which is such a great culinary incubator. But the big move to your business right here on Euphrosine, that came just two years ago. Tell me about how big you've grown. Edible Enterprises was an amazing tool for us. We were able to, to rent kitchen space by the hour and really just prove the model out. And when we got into Whole Foods, we realized that we might have something. And sales started picking up, and we discovered this building in New Orleans uh, was just perfect for what we wanted to do. It was a big stretch at that time to go from, I I swear to God, it was like 1,800 square feet to 17,000 square feet. When we moved in into the space, we had four employees and four tanks. Fast forward to today, two years, and we're over 40 employees and over 400 tanks. But we just saw a vision and thought, you know, this could be something really unique and big, and we could help put New Orleans and the South on the map for something that not everybody else is doing. We've got beers covered, we've got liquor covered, we've got all that covered, and we have amazing brands coming out of New Orleans, but nothing truly healthy, in my opinion. Uh, <clears throat> so, kind of counterculture. I can remember our first, you know, couple months trying to get people to try it. We just gave up. We're like, we're putting vodka in this stuff. (laughs) Um, So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, The ride has been incredible. We really thought this was just going to be a hobby. And we sold a couple million bottles last year all over the country. And we're being adopted in New Orleans, which is really special. Well, that's one of the amazing visionary things that you all did. So you were kombucha drinkers for a long time before this all began. But you recognized that there was a niche in the southern market. How did you set out to make Big Easy Bucha branded as a distinctly southern product? New Orleans is it's a food city and an agricultural state. So it was an easy fit for us to look at this edible bounty that we have access to. 
there's kind of an interest in the marketplace of unusual fruits and flowers um, from all over the world. The global palette has gotten more adventurous. People are attracted to the fact that we use things like magnolia blossom. I mean, that's completely original to our brand. We've never seen any other company try and do that. Um, of course, our beautiful strawberries, mayhaws, things of that nature, hibiscus. When they take a sip, they're either reminded of a trip to New Orleans or it's where they grew up or it's a place that they would dream to go. We're discovering locals that maybe grew up in New Orleans or had a stint or went to Tulane or Leola or another local school and then moved elsewhere and they're discovering the brand and getting really excited and being able to to taste you know punch tool strawberries you know in a beverage shipped across the country so it's been been really fun and when you talk about putting your money where your mouth is you all are certainly doing that you have taken this agricultural thing to almost an extreme tell me about the two farmers that you're buying everything they're growing. Yeah, it's it's you know it's been a challenge because not all farmers can afford to be organic. Uh, they may be able to produce organic, and most of our farmers do, uh, but not all of them are able to go through the just insane process of becoming certified organic. And it's very expensive for small farmers. It would have been kind of easy for us to have sourced from out of state. That's sort of the way that the organics trends have been going. It's easy to buy fruit from Chile or even California. So there was an inflection point in a six-month discussion when we launched into a few national retailers that really were pushing for full organic certification. And there's different levels. Or be 70% certified, still an organic product, and support a local farm. And we chose the latter. And we're really proud and happy that this particular farmer in Ponchatoula can count on our purchases year in and year out. It, it's a growing purchase. This year will double the amount of strawberries we purchase from him. And your citrus farmer is even a more special part of the family here. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Zerang family uh, is interwoven into the fabric of this brand all over the place. From Paul Zerang, who is our head brewer, he's our longest standing employee to his brother, who is a new employee, but has been with us in an informal role uh, since the beginning, to his family's farm in Taft, Louisiana, that grows Satsumas. Paul is such an incredibly special employee. I am so inspired by your workforce and what you look for in employees and how you hire here at Big Easy Bucha. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so Paul is completely deaf. He came in for an interview, and we just hit it off with him right away. And neither Austin nor I are, we, we don't really know sign language. But thanks to technology and some wonderful apps out there, we found a way to bridge that communication divide. And we're really proud that now we employ several folks from the deaf community and have given them kind of a stable and exciting employment opportunity. When we decided to move to New Orleans, we called the mayor's office and said, we want to find some type of institution that can help us find employees that maybe really need work. And the mayor's office at the time recommended Strive. So we had a couple meetings and it was pretty clear right away that this was a program we wanted to be involved in. And the Strive uh, chapter here in New Orleans, uh, they take folks that have barriers to entry to employment. They put them through a very thorough boot camp style, you know, we're gonna teach you everything you need to know 
to gain and retain quality jobs. So we are really proud to announce that we give all first strive refusal from new job openings to the strive program. And we've had some, some great, great stories. It's not been easy. Uh, there've been some challenges, but we're really proud to just, we're sticking with it. And we're, we still consider us very small, uh, economically and then both by employment size. But as, and we plan on growing, we're not going to stay small for long. We're excited to keep partnering with programs like that in New Orleans and just help sort of rebuild this city in meaningful ways. You all are really doing the deed here. And you know, I think you can taste it in the product. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Alexis Corman and Austin Sherman of Big Easy Bucha in New Orleans. Coming up next, we join coffee maestro Tom Oliver to hear what's brewing over at his Broad Street Cafe, Coffee Science. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster poor boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. My name is Tom Oliver, and I am the owner of Coffee Science. Tom Oliver's been one of New Orleans coffee gurus for decades, a talent now on display at his Broad Street coffee house, Coffee Science. We stopped by Coffee Science to share a cup of joe with Tom and hear his story. Tom Oliver, it is such a pleasure to have you on Louisiana Eats with me. How did your love affair with coffee begin? I think it began when I was a small child and my mother would leave her coffee on the table and when it got cold, I would drink it. She thought I was quite strange, but so it was black coffee from like age four. Then like I ended up in college studying physics and then like a good little college student, I dropped out and decided I better get a job and I ended up as a, a college dropout barista does that sound familiar sometimes I feel guilty I might have started something but this was 1989 in Ann Arbor Michigan working for um, a coffee house called Espresso Royale Cafe and what brings you to New Orleans 
Well, I was playing some rock and roll in a great surf band, and we came on tour and stopped in New Orleans. And just the second we hit the city, I fell in love with it. And I went home and packed all my stuff and moved here in 92. And once you were here in the city, you found your coffee culture here, didn't you? Absolutely. Ironically, I I rented a little warehouse, and I was selling equipment and fixing espresso machines and it was right next to a little small roaster that eventually would be a company 10 years later I would work for and eventually own uh, Orleans Coffee. But I didn't even know at the time the name of it. How did you acquire the skills to know what to do with those espresso machines? I got the opportunity because I had a manager with a short temper. So when he couldn't fix something, he would just throw it on the ground and smash it. So I said, hey, you know, I like to take stuff apart. Why don't you let me give it a shot? At least I won't smash it. And, uh, you know, the first few repairs were challenging, but eventually I figured out how everything worked, how the systems work. I I like that little mechanical stuff. So if I'm going to do something, like really do it, I got to know all about it. I got to get in there and give it my all. And I don't feel like I can give it my all unless I know what I'm standing on. So I I really like to get in and know how equipment works. I like to know how coffee is grown. So just, you know, I spent 20 years just learning and still do every day, learning everything I can about coffee. Along the way, you had an experience in the French Quarter at one of the original coffee houses. Yeah, of course, Caldi's. In 1998, uh, I worked there as an assistant manager. It was a, a great job. We roasted our own, just this huge, comfortable room, and you, you would just people would just come and sit in the windows and watch people walk by in the French Quarter while they drank coffee. It was I, I joke with all the young kids today that it was our Tinder. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. So if you want to know what was going on, you went to Caldi's. I think it's very interesting that in your life, in your careers, you have gone from a relatively big business when you were part of New Orleans Coffee Roasters to deciding that what you really wanted to do was hang up your own shingle right here on South Broad. Um, Explain what you were thinking and, and what your plan with that was. All right. So when I started at Orleans Coffee, it was just me. Like I did all the service, all the sales, all the training, all the support. It was great. I just got to deal with people all day. I got to solve their problems. It was really fun. It was very rewarding. But as you get bigger, now you have to have corporate accounts and people are bigger and hustle and bustle and you got to have teams of trainers and service techs and Suddenly you're an office worker. I, I need to talk to people. I need to look in your eyes. I want to get my fingernails dirty. This is fun. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Well, let's talk about the coffee science here at Coffee Science. Why is your coffee so delicious? What are you doing here that's different? And take us through that scientific process. Okay, so first of all, you have to understand... Did, like, have you ever learned how to play an instrument? 
the first time you sit down at the drum kit, you play boom, chuck, boom, chuck, and it's the simplest beat. And then, you know, 30 years of playing drums later, you're still playing that simple beat, but now it's so complex. And I mean, brewing coffee is sort of the same journey for me. Yeah, we have all these recipes in our industry, and people say, oh, well, it's such a mature industry. The problem is, is that the really good pieces of information that allow you to really make something special, they're not all cohesively glued together in any book. So you have to, like, experience these things sometimes through trial and error and discussions and measuring and experimentation and then you end up really close to right back at the same place where somebody told you this is how you brew coffee in the first place but with a a deeper understanding that really allows you to nail it every time so i started with the water new orleans water is pretty good as far as balance and ph goes but there's too much stuff in it so we have to ro the water and then dial back in just the amount of dissolved solids calcium and magnesium that we want from there we move on to the brewers so i couldn't find a commercial brewer that performed exactly like i wanted it to perform this is my new radical idea about flow rate of water so as the water moves through the bed of coffee if it moves too quickly well then it's not going to pick up enough stuff along the way and if it moves too slowly it's just going to sit there and like destroy some of those volatile oils in the coffee so you need the water to flow through your coffee in the right amount of time home machines are even worse than commercial machines but I find that almost all of them are way too slow. So I modified our brewers to brew a little more than twice as quickly as they were capable of from the factory. And this is where like all this, these years of working on equipment have paid off in that you realize just because they built the machine doesn't mean they're any good at making coffee. They're good at building machines. It's our job to figure out like what machine we want and somehow communicate that to them so that they can build it. This is part of what I'm trying to do here is help educate people on how easy it is to have better coffee. The brewers I'm using here are the least expensive commercial brewers that Wilbur Curtis makes. I think they're about $600 a piece. And I'm outperforming the $3,000 brewers I see all over the place. When it comes to the coffee shop experience, what's your philosophy here? You know, I've been in customer service a long time. And at first, when you're a barista, you're just nice to everybody. As soon as you figure out, they'll tip you. And then something strange happens where you start enjoying being nice to people where you start actually feeling like maybe being a barista is important because I'm the first interaction everyone has in their day. And I, in my own little small way, get to decide whether you're going to have a good day or not. And so, like, it is my sacred honor to try and be kind, appreciative, and make sure you leave here in a better mood than you came in. 
I mean, that just, it makes me feel good. I hope it makes my customers feel good. And that's, that's how I want to run a business. Now, Tom Oliver, the coffee professional, what do you drink? What is your coffee drink of choice? And does it change as you go throughout your day? It, it does. So I learned a lot of lessons in this coffee journey. And one of them was the more different coffees you drink, the more different coffees you like. Or if you just drink the same thing every day, you're not going to like anything else. So yes, I will come in and have a shot of espresso in the morning. I drink a lot of just black coffee in a nice little eight ounce mug because it's just a pleasurable experience. I'm always, you know, tasting the iced coffee. I'm always tasting the Venetian cream. You got to make sure everything's consistent. Uh, We're very recipe driven here. So I tried to set up a system where to work here, you don't have to know as much about coffee as me. You just have to be able to follow my recipes so, so far, so good. I have some terrific workers and, and it's coming out, but I like to drink different origins of coffee from different roasters all the time. And uh, having that expanded palate, I really just, I enjoy coffee in all forms. That was Tom Oliver owner and chief scientist at Coffee Science. is Phyllis Jordan. I'm the founder of PJ's Coffee. On September 5th, 1978, Phyllis Jordan opened a small shop in New Orleans she called PJ's Coffee. For over two decades under her leadership, PJ's Coffee became the city's first coffee house chain, as well as a beloved local institution. With the modern proliferation of coffee chains and the rise of coffee house culture, it's easy to forget that once upon a time, you'd be hard-pressed to find specialty coffee in the United States. And in New Orleans in the late 70s, one particular kind of coffee held sway, one that a newly arrived transplant was not very keen on. Yeah, um, coffee in New Orleans was, um, it was chicory coffee. It was, you drank chicory coffee. And that was it. Pretty much. And I was lucky enough to have seen coffee starting up, or specialty coffee, starting up on the West Coast. I lived there for a while. And when I came here and realized no one was really doing that, I thought, there's an opportunity here. With no formal business education, Phyllis opened PJ's Coffee and Tea Company on Maple Street, anchored in the university section. Originally, PJ's was strictly a retail store, selling a varied selection of coffees by the pound, loose-leaf teas, and all the accoutrements. All the paraphernalia for the rituals of friendship was one of the lines I used in advertising. Though the word paraphernalia is a little bit loaded and didn't really bring in a wide audience. 
Upon installing a used bun coffee maker, Phyllis opened a cafe in her one-room shop, furnished with only a table and four chairs. And when that table and four chairs started filling up on a more regular basis, I put in more tables and chairs and more tables and chairs. And, and that's how it worked. So I always had two coffees at least, a medium roast and a dark roast. And it, would, it changed by, by the day. And, um, you know, it was just, it was trial and error. I, you know, I made all the mistakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nonetheless, the lines at the counter kept getting longer. And Phyllis began the process of transforming her business into a coffee powerhouse. She challenged old concepts of coffee house culture and brought in a breath of fresh air. Well, a coffee house in 1980 or so, when I was first doing this part of the business, was really connected to beatniks, which is a very old word, but still it, it, the coffee house conjures up beatniks, darkness, and only a certain kind of cool that you could be. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted moms to come in with their kids. I wanted business people to come in to do some paperwork. I wanted everyone to feel comfortable coming in. So I always played classical music, but not orchestral music. I played chamber music because you could talk over it. And encouraging conversation was a big part of what I was after. Over the next several years, as she could afford it, Phyllis began to install better equipment and expand cafe operations. An espresso machine made its first appearance in the early 80s. Changes were slow, but sensible. I could only push the envelope so far, for one thing. I mean, people still would walk into my store and say, oh, you'll never make it. Because we, <laughs> we drink chicory coffee here. Uh-huh. And I said, well, that's fine. Good. <laughs> you stay over there. Um, and, uh, and I I did, from time to time, sell chicory coffee, but I hated it. And I just did it to appease my staff. And then I would say, no, you were not going to do this. And the reason I didn't want, didn't want to do it is chicory is a whole different plant. And you can't put whole bean coffee and chicory through a grinder because it will gum the grinder up. So you have to sell it as a ground coffee product. I couldn't make myself do that. For freshness reasons, I was going to sell whole bean coffee. In 1984, PJs moved into whole bean roasting to further assure their coffee's freshness. That same year, Phyllis opened her second coffee house in uptown New Orleans. Someone who'd been baking for me, because I did have, by the time I had pastries from various small bakers, um, decided that it would be better for him if he just opened his own coffee house on Magazine Street. And so he he did that. And he used colors that I was using in my store. And, oh. you know, he, he just kind of ripped me off. Yeah, he just kind of Which, franchised without a franchise. Yeah, yeah, before I was franchising. And yeah. um, that really made me mad. Luckily, I was able to buy him out, and I did that, and uh, that's how the Magazine Street store was started. That was the second store was Magazine Street. Then Tulane University came to me and said, we'd like to have something on campus. I think it was 250 square feet. It was very, very small. It was a glass box. It was impossible to cool in the summertime. Anyway, that was just fabulous. I mean, that was such a great place to be. As the Coffee by the Cup business expanded to Tulane's campus, Phyllis's original concept for PJs was amended to make room for grab-and-go. Well, 
in spite of my very strong feelings about a lot of things, I do have a little bit of sense. And so I did understand that I had to have a to-go cup pretty early, um, although I tried to keep China in the stores for a very long time. So I was already doing coffee to-go by that point. Um, so I guess that wasn't too much of a leap for me. But, you know, uh, in other markets, I don't. I think we've had only a couple of them tr- be tried here without success, is the drive-through only coffee oh. business. Yeah. And I never wanted to do that because I always figured if you came through a drive-through at a PJ's, and we did have them, at least you knew there were people inside. Yeah. That you could have, if, if only you could sit down and, and stay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I, so I just, I did adjust. I did make adjustments to my um, strongly held views or I would have starved. Other adjustments Phyllis made were triggered by national and local chains, like Community Coffee, expanding their cafe operations in the 1990s. Community, of course, started probably 1991, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they were the only multiple location competition that I had until Starbucks came in town. My goodness. And they, of course, opened their very first store, three doors down from my Maple Street store, which was the most successful store, which is a great retail strategy. Of course. I had a line out the door every morning. And it was easy pickings. That back of that line was real easy to get. So that's when we introduced the express line. Because <laughs> by that time, there was the lattes and there was the, you know, the syrups and the you know, this, 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 and that. And if you want to come in and get a cup of hot black coffee, and you can put your cream and sugar in it by yourself, or an iced coffee, which is very easy to get to a customer quickly. Um, that was the express line. Perhaps PJ's greatest national contribution, something Phyllis is rarely given credit for, is the introduction of what today is often called New Orleans-style iced coffee. Starbucks may have opened first in 1971, but it was over 20 years before they began serving their version of iced coffee, something they trademarked, Frappuccino. Meanwhile, here in New Orleans, Phyllis was experimenting with her version of iced coffee, an idea sparked by a childhood memory. I'm a native of St. Louis, which is a very German city. And my mother and her friends in the subdivision drank iced coffee. And it was a German tradition. Now, that their idea of iced coffee was yesterday's coffee poured over ice and so forth, which is an abomination as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there was, at the time, a, a coffee supplier in New Orleans named Mike Buckley, who I was buying some coffee from. And Mike knew about the Toddy Cold Water Coffee Maker. So I started doing cold brew coffee for iced coffee only. That was phenomenally successful. So between my mother and Mike Buckley, I was able to make it happen. In the mid-80s, Phyllis was the first retailer serving iced coffee commercially in New Orleans. Pretty much. And really, across the country, I was pretty much the first one. Amazing. Because I can remember going into coffee meetings at national levels, you know, mid-80s. All the big coffee, the General Mills people and all those guys would stand up at me and say that young people just aren't going to drink coffee. Young people do not drink coffee and they're, not, they're never going to. They want it cold. And I'd stand up and I'd say, uh, yes, I'm doing cold coffee in New Orleans. It's doing very well. Yes, a young audience is very attracted to this. 
And then they would, they, I would sit down, and nobody paid any attention to me for a long, long, long time. Now it is a phenomenon. At the turn of the century, the 21st century, that is, between the stores Phyllis owned and stores that were franchised, there were over 30 PJ's coffee shops in Orleans Parish and throughout the Gulf South. So at what point did this New Orleans coffee pioneer decide to call it a day? <laughs> it was about 99 or 2000. Of course, these kind of things take a while to mature and to happen. There were many, many steps involved. Um, um, but I, I was tired. I was tired. You know, I have a BA in sociology. That's my educational background. Yeah. <laughs> I learned to love to read a financial statement. I can't put one together, but I love to read them. I love to use them as a tool. That was about as close as I got to being really businesslike, and I, but I was good about that. So over time, I, I found a buyer. Um, that luckily didn't work out. It was bought by a group of people in Atlanta, and um, it has been bought back from Atlanta by the Ballard Brothers in Covington, and they now are running it out of Covington, still being roasted within view of the Mississippi River on P North Peters Street, and it's still being roasted by people that I hired. <laughs> <laughs> Phyllis Jordan, founder of her namesake PJ's Coffee of New Orleans and mother of iced coffee. What other popular iced beverage has the distinction of being invented in New Orleans? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. We've established that iced coffee was invented in New Orleans by Phyllis Jordan. But what other popular iced beverage has the distinction of being invented in New Orleans? Though its name would suggest otherwise, the beverage is none other than Lebanese iced tea. 
This sweet lemon-flavored iced tea made with rose water and pine nuts provides a perfect complement to Middle Eastern cuisine and is a welcome addition to any hot summer day. While you'll find it on a variety of menus throughout Louisiana and even Texas, don't go looking for it in Lebanon. Lebanese iced tea was first invented in the 1990s by the brothers-in-law behind Mona's Cafe, Nick Monam and Karim Taha. When they opened their first restaurant in Mid-City, their menu included the new brew inspired by Jalab, a popular summertime drink in Lebanon. While their Lebanese iced tea shares Jalab's color, rose water, and pine nut garnish, the recipe is uniquely New Orleans, with its base of iced tea firmly rooted in Southern culture. There's nothing quite like it. And, like iced coffee, it's a testament to our city's innovative spirit. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Mona's Lebanese iced tea is a real Louisiana brew. Welcome to my brewery. Uh, my name is Scott Wood. I'm the owner and head brewer of the Courtyard Brewery in New Orleans, Louisiana. Among an ever-expanding number of craft breweries opening in the Crescent City these days, Courtyard Brewery has firmly established itself as a beer lover's destination. Opened in 2014, Courtyard offers some of the smallest batches of beer commercially produced and sold, all in a casual, laid-back atmosphere. I first met Scott Wood years ago in a French Quarter Courtyard during an event put on by Brooklyn Brewery. Scott struck up a conversation with me, and as he stood there with his newborn son sleeping strapped to his chest, he shared his dream of opening a small brewing operation in New Orleans. It's always a treat to get to see someone's dream become a reality. We went to see him at Courtyard to learn all about it. Scott, how did the dream begin, and how did you get here? It goes back a few generations. My great-grandfather owned a brewery and was a brewmaster in Montana, pre-Prohibition. Post-Prohibition, he moved to uh, Los Angeles, and my family moved down to San Diego after that. My brother got into the beer industry in the early 90s, before the big craft boom, and then dragged me into the thing. I didn't drink until I was 30, so it was never really an interest of mine. I think I had smelled a Budweiser a long, long time ago, and it just made me wretch when I was a really young kid, and that always stuck with me. And so I actually tasted my first beer at DBA on Frenchman. I remember vividly, it was a rogue dead guy. Little Freddie King was playing, and it was like, I was like, this is cool, this is never gonna happen again. Then it was just like downhill from there. Why did you call your brewery Courtyard Brewery? Well, when I first moved to New Orleans, I lived in the French Quarter. I found a place in the French Quarter off St. Louis. And my good friend and I, who well, we became good friends because of brewing, home brewing. And we would be brewing in the courtyard. It was, an, it was a really great time for me uh, because we would be in the middle of the French Quarter brewing beer and just kind of hanging out. And eventually it got to the point where I was brewing three or four times a week. 
so I would make the beer and somebody else would, would, was a pastry chef. So that she would make, you know, desserts and our other friends would cook. And it was just this like communal uh, neighborly thing. So when I was trying to figure out a name for the brewery, I kept coming back to Courtyard because it was a joke. It, I mean, it was kind of a joke at first. We used to call it the Courtyard Brewery because we would be sitting in the Courtyard Brewing. And it was never really anything more serious than that until, you know, we go to make an LLC and then it's like, oh, we need a name. Well, and I guess then you also <laughs> felt compelled to find a place with a courtyard. Yeah, I mean, that was a big part of it. We had looked at like 30 or 40 places around the city and had an extensive search. I mean, that was a year and a half process just to find the right place. And then it took us 13 months from the day I signed my lease until we opened our doors. Uh, the bulk of that was waiting for uh, safety and permits. Going from home brewing to professional brewing, uh, nerve-wracking, can't encapsulate how terrible it was and terrifying it was. So for the first... <laughs> For the first like three months, I don't think we had any of our own beer because we just kept blaming it on equipment failure. But really, we were dumping batches because things just weren't working right. They weren't coming out right. We were scorching wort. We were uh, under hopping things or just dumping beer everywhere on accident. Like, but we were still making money because we had we were able to carry guest draft, and so our ability to carry other breweries' beers, which is sort of an anomaly in the industry, really saved us. So the day you open up here, you're not serving your own beer. No, it was a, a Thursday in October in 2014. And we, you know, people came in and they saw, they heard there's a brewery opening up. And we had to quickly explain to them, look, yes, we're going to be a brewery. <laughs> we are brewing beer, but we need to make money because it took us 13 months to get open. We're out of money. Are there very many breweries that have brew pubs where you can drink the competition? Around the country, not really, because a lot of the laws prohibit it. For instance, Nola Brink cannot tap guest beer. Their license disallows it. Tell me, you get your own beer on tap, and what's the reaction that people have when you start presenting your own beer? I think the first beer that we finally nailed down was our baby IPA. And, um, I mean, I, I knew what it was supposed to taste like, because I've, I've been brewing it at home for years, and... Getting that beer to scale up was extremely important to me. It was brewed in honor of my son, Jules, uh, first of all. So that, you know, I mean, that alone means you got to get this right. We tasted it in the bright and it was like, okay, I think we're, I think we finally figured it out. And it was exciting. And a bunch of our friends came in and they were tasting it. And, you know, our friends are discerning, let's just say. (laughs) (laughs) So... It passed the friend test, and that was the biggest hurdle for me. Once, once we got past all of our beer nerd friends, then I was like, okay, we know what we're doing now. One of the great things about this model is that we don't have to churn out the same thing every day. Um, so if something doesn't work for us, we don't ever have to brew it again. We don't have to go through the licensing process. We don't have to go through, you know, make packaging for it before we get feedback. We can just put it right on tap and see if it works. And if it does we can brew it again, make it better, or brew the same thing. And if it doesn't, that's okay. How many different beers do you have of yours usually available? And what's your run like? We have three barrel batches, so roughly 90-something gallons of beer per batch, which is tiny. On tap at any time, we have 8 to 12. Is That's usually about where we land. Um, we try to get as much on as we can, but it goes very quickly. And 
the guest draft takes pressure off our house taps. So if we didn't, I mean, we still need guest draft to kind of like buffer people just drinking us dry. But yeah, I mean, eight to 12 is what we, we normally have based on cooler space and production capacity and all that. Um, we're really kind of bursting at the seams. I mean, we still carry a number of our local, you know, quote unquote competitors, but they're more like comrades. Like we're still fighting the pressure from big beer and from the global marketplace. Like we're still trying to grow local beer together as much as we're trying to best one another with the product. That was Scott Wood of Courtyard Brewery. In 2020, Scott has plans to open a second location in Mid-City, near the Lafitte Greenway. And that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.